The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. May the wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. We always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we have uh, sound working in the booth. Joe's up there waving his arms frantically that something's wrong. So we uh, always need to, Al's got it. Uh, see, they can't communicate with each other until we get that door cut in up there, so... I have to route communication from one side to the other. You got it, Joe? Can't get what? The recorder to work? Okay, while they're trying to get the recorder to work. Al, you're going to have it recorded, though. You've got it on the computer? Okay. We'll start off. This is one of those techno challenges. You know, I'm going to add that to the... Series of uh, tests that the Lord provides, and we have people testing and system testing. And this week has been a week for technology testing. My printer, I have a procedure in the morning. Usually, when I go up to get dressed, I print the notes. When I come down, they're ready to go. This morning, I, when I came back down, they'd printed a half a page, and the computer glitched. So, at, at 10 minutes till, I had to print all the notes, and that took a while. So, that's why I was running late. On top of that, see, I'm just talking now to give them a few moments to get their act together. On top of that, when I went to this new Lagos training this last week, they've upgraded the new Lagos to a, a more advanced uh, system called Libronics. Trouble is, about Friday afternoon, what I've discovered is that uh, in my new laptop, which we had to upgrade because the other one crashed, the, um, it's built on the new XP technology, which is what Libronics takes takes advantage of. But the new fonts for Greek and Hebrew on the new Libronics aren't up to speed because they have to use what's called Unicode, which is a modern Greek and Hebrew font, because Microsoft hasn't gotten their act together to create ancient Greek, biblical Greek and Hebrew fonts. So it looks lousy. You can't read it. It's difficult for a modern reader to read, so you're caught in that techno trap. The other problem is that the new XP technology won't read the old Greek and Hebrew fonts. So it's just one of those things you get caught in with the advances. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But the computer programmers all want to fix it to make things better. And what they do frequently is get you caught in this kind of a trap. So I'm ready to call up the uh, people to take all my computers to the dump and just go back to the old pencil technology, which... always seems to work. Well, at least Al's recording, getting it recorded on the computer up there, so we'll go ahead and uh, begin with prayer, a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship if necessary, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for even these small tests and trials because they give us an opportunity just to just relax and trust in you. Father, we know that you are in control of all events, 
and that human history is under your control, and therefore we can relax knowing that, that you, will, uh, you will always honor the teaching of your word. Now, Father, as we begin our continue our study in Judges today, as we look at this continuing bizarre episode in Israel's history, may we understand its significance in terms of application for our own thinking, our own lives, and our own culture. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Judges 19. Judges 19, and I have to take a few moments to set the stage again. We have to understand the purpose of this writer. If we do not understand what this writer is trying to communicate, then when we come to these last chapters in Judges, it's very easy to just get lost and say, well, this is just really bizarre, but I don't understand it. I don't have... have, um, any concept of what's going on here, so how can this have any application or meaning to my life? And the problem is that that we don't interpret things often in terms of context or in terms of the writer's theme or purpose in writing a particular piece of Scripture. And the reason that Judges is written, as I've stated over and over again, is to portray the dark days in the history of Israel as an example, really, for Israel in their future not to repeat the same mistakes. And the mistake was that they rejected God and they turned to the idols, they turned to the fertility religions of the Canaanites, and in the process they they deteriorated spiritually and in every other way as a nation. But the spiritual decline, which is apostasy, the spiritual decline is the root cause of all the other problems in the nation so that you can look at their economic problems, the military defeats, the military disasters, the social problems, the breakdown in all of the divine institutions from individual responsibility through their identification as a a nation. You You can look at the breakdown of all the divine institutions as merely the the symptoms of the cause. And the cause is spiritual. It always begins with a spiritual malaise, a spiritual uh, rejection of doctrine and a substitution of something in the creation for the worship of God. And so the same thing is true for us today. We can look out on the scene of our national history and we can see all of the social problems that we have, and there is such a vast array, and the problems seem to be so overwhelming and so complex, from problems in leadership, problems in the military, problems of ethics uh, among leaders, problems of criminality in the nation as a whole, uh, problems of poverty, race relations, whatever you want to look at, they are the result of one basic cause, and that is a rejection of doctrine in the nation. And so the only solution ultimately is going to be rejection of doctrine, I mean, the, the uh, positive volition and acceptance of doctrine. And apart from that, the only way that order can be restored is through some sort of human viewpoint autonomous uh, executive power. Ultimately, that is always what happens in history, is that as a nation declines and people allow their sin natures to run amok, the nation loses any sense of absolutes, then, then everybody does what's right in their own eyes, which is the theme of judges. When everybody's doing their own thing, the result is fragmentation. The result of fragmentation is internal collapse and anarchy. The only way to restore any semblance of stability when there is anarchy is to have somebody who becomes roughly a dictator or absolute uh, authority in the land. And so apart from a return to doctrine as the center point of our national uh, culture, national society, the only solution to this continuous deterioration we see is that there will be a, an ongoing loss of individual freedom as more and more power is accumulated to a central, uh, a central authority and a federal authority. And so that's exactly what we can expect. Now, what we see in Judges 18 through, or Judges 17 through 21 is two episodes. Two episodes at the end of this book, which are designed to illustrate what is going on among the people in Israel. 17 and 18, as we saw, focused on the apostasy that preceded this, and we saw that a Levite was the central focal point of that episode. And this particular Levite was a grandson of Moses and led the nation into idolatry. 
that is the cause of all of their problems, is their idolatry. Now, starting in 19, we see the results of that in terms of its impact morally and spiritual, uh, morally upon the nation. Spiritual apostasy always precedes moral collapse. So it start, start off just by way of review, looking at chapter 19, is that we have this Levite who is living temporarily in the hill country of Ephraim because Levites had no possession. There were 42 cities set aside to be uh, homes for the Levites, but their primary responsibility was to travel throughout the land and to teach the Bible. Now, this particular Levite had a concubine. Now, that shows a breakdown of one divine institution, the divine institution of marriage. And this concubine, it's translated, played the harlot. But as I said last, last week, the Hebrew word here has the idea of becoming angry with. So this concubine became angry with him, and she left him and went home to Papa. And in verse 3, after a four-month period, he decided he'd let her cool down, so she must have really been angry. No telling what he did. And uh, he finally goes after her in order to bring her back. And he takes a servant and a pair of donkeys and comes to her father's house. And he is going to, uh, according to verse 3, he's to speak. It's translated the New American Standard to speak tenderly to her. But the idiom in the Hebrew means that he is going to speak to her heart. He's going to reason with her. He's going to present a case for why she should come home. And he is welcomed very hospitably by her father. Now, this is the context of what we should notice in the next five or six verses, down through verse 9, is the overwhelming hospitality of the father. As we look at that, the writer makes a lot of uh, points about the time. He goes on and on making temporal notations. It was the third day, it was the fourth day, it's the fifth day, it was evening, it was running late. Uh, Finally, the man has to disengage from the overwhelming hospitality of the Father in order to leave. But the point the Holy Spirit is belaboring here is the hospitality of the Father because that is going to stand in stark contrast to the inhospitality of the people of Gibeah. The Benjamites are inhospitable. In fact, they are downright antagonistic and deadly. And this is said in contrast to the Father to bring out the point that within the culture or society of Israel as the nation of God in a vassal relationship to God based on the covenant of Moses, they are to treat one another in love. That was one of the mandates of the Mosaic covenant was they were to love one another, to to love the neighbor as themselves. And they're failing to do that. That's one of the points that the author is demonstrating here is the complete breakdown of that principle in the Mosaic covenant. Economy. Now, by application, we can see that even in the body of Christ, we are to we are mandated to love one another as Christ loved the church, and that means that we should be hospitable, that we should look out for people, and when there are opportunities to take care of people, we should do that. That's a function of compassion. It's not necessarily human good, and there is nothing wrong with taking care of the needs of other people, whether they're a believer or unbeliever, whether we know them or not, whether they're deserving or undeserving. Too often in the realm of charity, we get the idea that, well, I'm not going to help so-and-so because they don't really deserve it. Well, frankly, God didn't have that attitude towards us when he saved us. We didn't deserve it any more than anyone else. And so there is a biblical basis for the exercise of compassion. In fact, if it weren't for Christianity, there would not be... Uh, or there would not have developed in Western civilization orphanages and hospitals and things of that nature, which just ministered under the realm of common grace to the needs of humanity as a whole. And this is motivated by the basic principle of impersonal love. So this breaks down completely in a pagan society, and everybody is motivated simply by their own personal desires. Now, what we saw last time was that the, the man finally leaves, and starting in about verse 10, he, um, we read that he's finally forced to leave in the afternoon. He's, the, the father-in-law has been so gracious and so hospitable, he just keeps saying, well, stay for another meal. And so he and the father-in-law have continued to enjoy the meal. Now, one thing I want you to note is that, and remember, is that after... 
the second verse, there is no more a discussion about the woman. She is completely in the background and has nothing to do with uh, the action up to this point. She is completely passive and she plays no part in either her father's hospitality or in her uh, or in the, the Levite's decision to leave. She is completely passive to all of these decisions. And so in the midst of this, the author is pointing out that in this distortion of the, of the male-female relationship, she ends up becoming a victim of men who have no thought whatsoever to her particular role, her dignity, or her position in society. And this is typical in paganism. Last time I, I set the structure. We have to remember there's a difference between human viewpoint patriarchy and divine viewpoint patriarchy. And the reason I use that terminology is because this is what is often taught in college and university classrooms today, and you often hear news reports uh, coming out of the liberal left and the feminist left, is that that um, the problem with our society today is patriar- patriarchalism. And men are often the target, and sometimes justifiably so, Men are often the target for why there are problems in society. And so there has developed in the last 50 years in American society what we might call the feminization of the American male. And so in, in psychiatry, in psychology, in leadership classes, everything that happens within the framework of human viewpoint, there is this antagonism to, what is called, to male authority. But the reason for that is because male authority in Western civilization has been distorted by the sin nature and by human viewpoints so that rather being at the kind of authority that God outlines in Scripture, it's become a dictatorial, authoritative, tyrannical type of authority. And it goes back to Genesis 3, 16, and 17, where we are told as part of the curse there would be a war between the sexes, that women would have a desire, and the Hebrew word there is teshuka, which implies a desire to control and dominate. She would have a desire for the man, and the man would rule over her. There's the outline right there. That's not a mandate. That is simply a description of what would happen as a result of the fact that men and women have sin natures, and the male sin nature is going to manifest itself generally in one trend, and the female sin nature is going to manifest itself generally in another trend. And when establishment principles break down, self-discipline breaks down, and spiritual principles are gone, then the sin nature is just free to reign, and so society is going to polarize. Men are going to dominate women, and in most cases that's what has happened in history. Rarely has the other happened, at least socially. Now what happens individually in marriage is that women often uh, henpeck the husband and dominate the husband and try to rule and manipulate him. And so he seeks refuge somewhere else in his job or career or work or some other woman or whatever it is in order to get away from being dominated. And that is the source and description of many problems that occur in marriage. And that's exactly the kind of thing that we are seeing here in this situation is that in paganism, when there is no longer a biblical understanding of marriage, there's no longer a biblical understanding of the role of men and women, when no longer are there controls on the sin nature, then you see this internal fragmentation. And the result is that under paganism, women always end up being the victims and being abused. There is always an increase in sexual abuse. There is an increase in physical abuse. And there is a, 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 um, an assault on women as a consequence of that. Now, somebody might answer and say, well... You can go back in history, even during the times in American history, when the country was much more biblically based and establishment-oriented, and there was still abuse. Sure, there was abuse. There was still pagan thought then. Of course there's always that, because people still have sin natures. I'm not saying that, that these things don't happen when a country is dominated by doctrine. I'm saying that it's going to be less. The more a nation gets away from doctrine... The more a nation gets away from establishment principles, the more you see this. Just look at some of the Arab societies. Look at some of the cultures in Africa and the way in which women are uh, maltreated and abused and are treated as nothing more than chattel slaves if you want to see how the extreme form 
of paganism. So all we have to do today, it's, it's, it's amazing. The more we shout and scream as a nation about women as victims, the more victimized they're becoming. Because the entire context of our thought is human viewpoint. And there's no thought of control for the sin nature. In fact, what dominates is arrogance and self-centeredness. And so when everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, the consequences are always going to work themselves out in this manner in terms of the abuse of women. So we come down now to verse 10, and we see that they leave and they... They, it's so late that, that they can't travel very far before dusk occurs, and they come opposite Jebus, which is Jerusalem, and there they, they, um, they, they need to find a place to spend the night. There's no uh, Motel 6 there with the light on, so they, they uh, are going to move on. And the reason is that the Master says, that and makes a note that we will not, in verse 12, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not of the sons of Israel, but we will go on as far as Gibeah. Now, the point that he is making is that, that we won't be safe in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is dominated by Canaanites, pagans. And because of that, there's criminality in the city. We won't be safe, so we need to go someplace where we're safe. And where will we be most safe but among our own kind, among our own kin, among others who are also uh, in a covenant relationship with God, who have an obligation to uh, protect us and to, to love us. So they move into, they go on as far as Gibeah, and they go into the town square. And in verse 14 we read, So they passed along and went their way, and the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And the writer makes a point again and again of indicating that the problem here is in Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. They apparently have become most apostate uh, at this time, and so we see the, the danger that they fall into going into apostate Benjamin. Verse 15, And they turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gibeah, when they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And there we see the contrast between the hospitality of his father-in-law and the inhospitality of Gibeah. But there's one exception. That's in verse 16. An old man who is not a Benjamite. Then, behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening. Now, the man was from the hill country of Ephraim. And notice, he's not a Benjamite. The writer makes that point. And he was staying in Gibeah. He reinforces the idea. But the men of the place were Benjamites. He really wants us to realize this guy's not a native Benjamite. So he's not part of the problem. Verse 17, And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going? And where do you come from? And he, that is, the Levite, said to him, We're passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, for I am from there. And I went to Bethlehem in Judah. He doesn't go into the details why. He just explains that he's been traveling. And then, but now I'm going to my home, and no man will take me into his house. There's no hospitality here. Yet there is both straw and fodder for our donkeys, and also bread and wine for me. In other words, he's got his own supplies. He said, nobody has to feed us. We need just to come in out of the weather for the evening. We've got, we've got straw for the donkeys, and we've got our own uh, food to take care of us. And the young man who's with your servants, there's no lack of anything. In other words, we're not going to put anybody out. We don't need anybody else's food. We can take care of ourselves. The old man said to them, Shalom lecha, peace to you. Only let me take care of all your needs. However, do not spend the night in the open square. There is a warning here. Do not spend the night in the open square because he knows what the problem is. The problem is not outside the walls. The problem is not the Canaanites in Jerusalem. The problem is Israel. The problem is inside the walls. And what we're seeing here is the greatest problem to, for Israel is not the enemy outside, but the enemy on the inside. And the same is true for us in the spiritual life. The greatest enemy, if we put it into the context of the angelic conflict, the biggest threat isn't necessarily Satan or the demons, and that's what's often presented in modern discussions on spiritual warfare. In fact, when I was down in uh, uh, Ohio a couple of weeks ago, 
I was talking to somebody and they saw my book on spiritual warfare and that was the first thing out of their mouth was, well, is this going to tell me how to, how to conquer the demons in my life? And so I had to correct them and disabuse them of that pagan notion. The problem is not the, the external demons. The problem is our sin nature. The greatest threat is not external. The greatest threat is internal. Our sin nature is so evil that it is capable of the most hideous sins. And this is what we see in Judges. The writer of Judges is portraying this collapse and all, all that's going on in this episode as a product of the sin nature of Israel and the false religion. Now, it, now the false religion is demonic. They have succumbed to the doctrines of demons. But the solution is not going out and engaging the demons in some sort of one-on-one com- combat. The issue is submission to the authority of God and uh, applying the law and being positive to doctrine. So what we have here is a case where he's emphasizing the danger within Israel itself. Now in verse 22 we read, While they were making merry, while they're inside having, a, having their dinner and enjoying their, their meeting one another and having uh, some time together, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding the door, and they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may have relations with him. And this is what introduces us to the main problem in Gibeah, and that is they have succumbed to the same sin as the Sodomites in Sodom. And the writer uses parallel vocabulary and terminology here in order to bring to our mind that horrible situation in Genesis when the two angels came to warn Lot, and as they came into the city at dusk and they go into Lot's house, the perverts in the city came and knocked on the door demanding that they have sexual relationships with these men. And that's where we get the term sodomy for same-sex sexual unions. Now, in this particular passage... Sixteen words, almost one-fourth of of the key words in this section, occur in the same form in in Genesis. In addition, there's another 24 expressions from Genesis which find an extremely close counterpart in Judges. The variations are only a little bit stylistic and grammatical due to uh, tense forms or something like that. So the point is that the writer wants us to think that Israel is now as degraded as Sodom was. He doesn't want us to miss that point. That what has happened because Israel has rejected God and rejected doctrine, the consequence of that is they have succumbed to the same sexual perversions as Sodom. And they have become as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah and the five cities of the plain in Genesis chapter 19. Now, I want to pay attention to the dynamics of what causes this in a nation because we are faced with the same problem. In fact, some people have commented that if um, things continue to go the way they're going in places like San Francisco and many other cities, that, that God needs to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because things are as bad, if not worse, here as they were there. And the causes are the same. First of all, we see the hint of this problem in the next, in the description of these men in verse 22. It says, While they were making merry, behold, the men of the city, and New American Standard translates it, certain worthless fellows. But this is not the same kind of phrase as we have in Judges uh, 11 describing the brigands who surrounded Jephthah. These are called the sons of Belial. Now, in order to understand who the sons of Belial are and the significance of that term, we need to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy 13 describes how Israel is to deal with the influence of idolatry in the nation. And starting in verse 12, we see how they are to handle this. 
If you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, anyone saying that some worthless men, that's the phrase, sons of Belial again, some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known. So this defines the core meaning of the sons of Belial as those who are seducing the nation to follow after other gods. The term Belial comes from a negative particle in the Hebrew, uh, Bala, which means without, and Ya'al, which means profit or benefit. So it literally means without profit or benefit. And it came to describe a host of people, but the core meaning is those who lead into idolatry. Because, once again, we have to remember it is spiritual apostasy that always precedes moral collapse. And so, as a result of the spiritual apostasy and idolatry, this term comes to characterize a number of people who are letting their sin natures run rampant, murderers, rapists, false witnesses. It describes corrupt priests and uh, sodomites, those who lead, and those as well as those who lead others into idolatry. By the time we get into the New Testament, the term Belial becomes virtually a synonym for Satan, recognizing that behind all of this lies the satanic system. And that's what we have to realize is that Satan works indirectly through the human race, through thought. We'll put Satan here. And draw an arrow down, and this circle here represents the, the thinking of mankind, which is what the Bible calls cosmic thinking, from the Greek word kosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S, which has to do with an orderly, systematic way of thinking. And in James 3:13 through 15, this cosmic thinking is related to the thinking of demons. It is related also to natural thinking or soulish thinking. That is, the thinking of all human viewpoint has its origin in Satan because it reflects two basic characteristics of all satanic thought, which are, first of all, arrogance. The arrogance of Satan that he thought that he could be like God and rule the creation as God. And so he substituted himself for God. That's the first form of idolatry where a creature was substituted for the Creator. Arrogance and antagonism. Arrogance towards self, antagonism towards God. These are the two characteristics of all human viewpoint thinking. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, we see that the term sons of Belial has its, the root concept has to do with those who substitute idolatry for the worship of God. Now, still holding your place in Judges 19, let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, where we have one of the most clear statements on the pathology of idolatry and its consequent judgment. Verse 18 talks about the judgment of God in human history. This is not an eschatological judgment. This is the historical judgment of God on nations, specifically Gentile nations. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Notice present tense is continuously being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So it's being... a addressed to men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, that is, those who are negative volition. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. In other words, there's no excuse. Every human being knows God exists, and God has made it evident externally and internally. The external witness is described in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. No one on the planet has an excuse. Anyone who reaches a certain age is aware that God exists, and we call that age God consciousness. And from that age on, they are accountable for this. If they are negative, then they will suffer eternal... eternal condemnation, if they are positive at God consciousness, then God will make the gospel clear to them at some point and in some way. 
If they, but those who are negative are now treated, and, and the explanation of their judgment begins in verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. This is the pathology that we are seeing in Judges 19. Israel knew God, but they're not honoring Him as God. They are substituting the worship of idolatry for God, the worship of the Creator for the creature. I mean, the worship of the creature for the Creator. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile. That is, they became empty in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. This is the process of reversionism, where you go through uh, matiotes, which is a vacuum in the soul, which produces scar tissue. That vacuum sucks up all kinds of um, false teaching, false doctrine, and the result of that is that the heart becomes darkened, and then it becomes hardened with scar tissue. The divine comment is on ver- in verse 22, professing to be wise. They may be academically honored. They may have three or four PhDs. They may have a, a IQ in the range of 180 to 220. But no matter how intelligent they might appear, they are fools. And exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And then we have three series of judgments. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. So the first series of judgments, the first in the series, has to do with God giving them over. God pulls out the stops. He pulls back. The, there's a restrainer, a restraining influence God has on a positive culture. When that culture goes negative, the first thing God does in judgment is to give them over to their lust. He sort of pulls back the restraint a little bit so that they can begin to see the damaging consequences of, uh, of their sin nature and their idolatry. So at the beginning, it gives them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. So you would see a emphasis on uh, sexual immorality and no longer paying attention to the fact that sex is designed by God to be restricted to marriage. Then in verse 26, For this reason God gave them over. This is the second stage of judgment. God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. So it begins with lesbianism. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their errors. So here we see a rise of sodomy and sexual perversion and same-sex union as being part of a divine judgment on a culture. And it's the result of negative volition. Notice, it's the result of exchanging the worship of the Creator for the worship of the creature. And once that happens, these other things happen as a consequence of that original negative volition. Now, in light of that, I want to cover six points on the doctrine of sodomy. Six points in the doctrine of sodomy. First of all, the correct terminology is sodomy. It is not homosexual. And uh, I just got a new dictionary called the Dictionary of Etymology, which confirms some other, some other uh, studies that I have read that the term homosexual was not coined until the 1890s. And it did not begin to get, go into uh, everyday use until the early 1900s. About the time of World War I, uh, it was the first time it really gained uh, common usage. And the term was coined, the context of it was to, to come up with a neutral word that didn't sound nearly as, as offensive as sodomy in order to give legitimacy to the idea that people really had an option in their sexual orientation. That they're born, they, they, they can go either one way or the other, and they, it's really, they really do have, have an option, and not, neither is to be preferred over, over the other. So the correct terminology we must use, therefore, is sodomy, because if we use the word homosexual unwittingly, we are buying into the agenda of the homosexual that this is a legitimate option. 
Now, that doesn't mean you have to go around and say it with a nasty tone in your voice. I have trouble with that. Just, just, uh, just you can say it with a smile in your voice, just like, and link it with other sins. Well, sodomy and uh, adultery and criminality. Well, everybody's a sinner. Something like that. Second point. The sodomite agenda is to make sex, same-sex unions to appear to be no different from opposite-sex unions. The sodomite agenda is to make same-sex unions to appear to be no different than opposite-sex unions. Their goal is to make it seem just the same, just as benign as opposite-sex unions. Now, I'm not going to entertain you this morning or gross you out with some of the stories I've heard from a friend of mine who's an emergency room nurse who has given me some fairly graphic details of what she's encountered in the emergency room because of what happens in the perverse encounters of homosexuals. But let me tell you this. It's not pretty. And the idea that it's no different from what uh, heterosexuals engage in or same-sex or opposite-sex unions is merely a myth. It is just as perverse as it can be, and it continue, they continue to seek some greater and greater stimulation, and all of this has an effect on their own, uh, on their own mentality and giving rein to their own sin nature until it becomes uh, completely uncontrolled. So don't fall prey to the fact that they simply want us to think that it's, it's not any different from an opposite-sex union. Point number three. The means to their agenda is to desensitize people to the reality and the perverseness of same-sex unions. They have to desensitize us so that over and over again we constantly hear uh, stories or you see people presented on uh, television shows who are... Uh, sodomites or lesbians as if they're just like everybody else and they're really rather benign and uh, they have no, no real problem or negative impact on society. Point number four. Sodomy, as we've seen in Romans 1.22, is a judgment of God on a nation. Now, that doesn't mean that we are to be hostile to the sinner. We have to recognize that point four states that sodomy is a judgment of God on a nation, as is as we saw in Romans 1, that so is any level of sexual immorality. God pulls out the restraints, and the first stage is that there is an increase on illicit sex, and second stage is that develops into uh, sodomy and lesbianism. Point number five, then, we must realize that sodomy is a perversion generated by the sin nature, and is therefore at some level no different from any other sin. It's no different from any other sin. You might have a tendency towards arrogance and towards uh, malicious gossip, or maybe you have a mental attitude problem with vindictiveness and bitterness and jealousy, and that's eating away at your own soul, and you may not have a problem with an overt sin, such as uh, sexual lust, either for the, for, uh, the opposite sex or for the same sex. But all of these are just sins, and the solution is the same. We all need the grace of God. And we all need to start at the cross, and then we can conquer the sin, whatever that sin nature trend is, only through the application of doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit. So that brings us to point six, which is that there is a genetic tendency in each of us towards some particular sin. We inherit a sin nature, which is part of the body of sin. The sin nature is part of the genetic structure of the body. And so there are all sorts of tendencies that we inherit from our parents and from our grandparents. And your children manifest your sin nature, and sometimes it's downright scary when you look at your, your offspring to realize that they are manifesting your sin nature. But that happens. And so everybody has genetic tendencies towards one degree or another. Some have tendencies towards uh, uh, sexual lust, towards the opposite sex, and others have a tendency towards sexual lust, towards the same sex. 
But like any other sin, it can be conquered and controlled by Bible doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit. And one application in terms of a local church. No one who is a practicing adulterer, no one who is a practicing homosexual should be allowed to be in any kind of position where they are in either teaching Sunday school or whether they're a deacon or officer in the church or a pastor. Now, if somebody has a tendency towards being one way or the other, I mean, I, I, can, I can think of a number of pastors over the previous uh, decades who have manifested that there's, uh, one of their weaknesses in their sin nature is towards sexual lust, towards members of the opposite sex, and because they have given rein to that, they have caused tremendous problems for themselves in the pastorate. The same thing is true for someone who might have a homosexual tendency or trend in the sin nature. And if they have that under control by God the Holy Spirit and applying doctrine, then there is not a problem with that person being ordained that I can see or functioning in the pastorate because he's got his sin nature under control. But if he can't control it, then he needs to be out of the pastorate. There's no place for ordaining a practicing homosexual or somebody or a sodomite who who makes that an issue in their life. Now back to Judges chapter 20. This is the problem that they are, Judges 19, this is the problem that, that the Levite faces, is that these perverts, the sodomites in the town, have gathered together and they're banging on the door and they want to sodomize the man all night long. They want to have a, a gang rape on the man. It is a horrible situation. And the man who is the, the um, host is offended because his honor is at stake as a host. So the man, the owner of the house, in verse 23, went out to them and begins to argue with them not to do this thing and to plead with them. No, my fellows, he says, please do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not commit this act of folly. And he uses two words in describing this. The first word is zima, which, has to, for, which is translated wickedly, which has to do with any kind of sexual sin, and murder is sometimes described as zima. And the second word is navala, and navala has to do with any act of foolishness, any act that is a, a contrary to doctrine. And that is translated folly. It, in fact, it has to do with with any kind of um, unwise act which is completely contrary to the Word of God and to doctrine. usually includes some sort of immorality, but it also would encompass intellectual uh, stupidity. So don't do this stupid act is literally what he is saying. But then he begins to bargain with his own daughter. Verse 24, this is the same kind of thing that occurred in, in, in Sodom with Lot, that the host was going to offer uh, Lot's two daughters. But there was an angelic intervention at that point, and it wasn't carried out, but here it's carried out. It says, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out that you may ravish them, in other words, rape them, and do to them whatever you wish, but do not commit such an act of folly against this man. See, what we see here is the Holy Spirit is simply telling us what went on. And, and one, of what's going, what, one thing that's happening here is there's complete callousness to the effect that this has on the women. They're just treated as, as objects here, and it doesn't really matter what happens to them, and we'll sacrifice them to uh, this distorted view of male honor that I'm the host, this man is a Levite, uh, we don't want to, you can't show dishonor to us, so we'll compromise and let you take the women, because after all, and the picture here is that these women don't really matter at all to the men. I mean, the men in the house, the Levite and the host. Verse 25, but the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine. Now, this isn't the host acting, it's the man. He takes the concubine and brings her out to them. She's completely passive to this whole decision, and he seems to be completely uncaring. There's no indication that he has any affection for her as a person. 
And then we're told they raped her and abused her all night until morning. Then they released her at the approach of dawn. At this point, she's still alive, but barely. And as the day began to dawn, verse 26, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. The picture here is that she finally gets away and crawls and drags herself to the door of the house seeking aid, seeking some kind of protection, seeking some kind of uh, relief from all of her pain. And just as she barely reaches the house, just stretching out her hand to, to the door to begin to scratch on it or knock on it for someone to give her aid, she collapses and the implication is that she dies. But notice how her the man reacts, the Levite. I want you to notice his coldness, his lack of compassion, his lack of concern. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his own go on his way. Notice the writer wants us to pay attention again. He's going on his way. Everyone the theme of this whole time period is everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Everybody is self-absorbed, doing their own thing. It doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. And throughout this whole episode, the man, the host, are concerned about their own lives, their own agendas, and they're completely unconcerned about this, this poor woman. The master, the Levite, arose in the morning and opened the doors of his house and went out to go his way, and he stumbles over her lying there on the steps of the door. And behold, his concubine was lying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. What a pitiful sight. And he said to her, notice the depths of his compassion. He says, get up and let's go. He's completely unconcerned about what has happened to her overnight. But there was no answer. Then he placed her on the donkey and the man arose and went to his home. There's no concern at all for her welfare. He is more concerned about how his honor has been challenged and how he has lost respect in this town than what has happened to her. What he does with her at this point, I want you to understand, is not out of a concern for what happened to her, but for what happened to him. When he entered his house, he took a knife and he laid hold of his concubine and cut her into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her, literally that's bone by bone, so he butchers her into twelve pieces, butchers her body, and then sent her throughout the territory of Israel. Now, the writer has not noticed, the writer hasn't told us that she's dead yet. Now, the implication is that, that... Possibly that he killed her. We don't know for sure. The text is strangely silent on this. Whether she died as a result of the gang rape or whether she died as a result of his butchering her, we don't know. And that is left hanging. So he cuts her up into 12 pieces. Now, to understand the significance of this, and this might be the first occasion of this in the history of Israel, but it seems to be a Canaanite practice, Uh, our typical ancient Near Eastern practice of a call to arms and a warning, I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11. Verse 7. Now this is in the context of when Saul has got to bring the people of the nation together For war. And in order to call them to, to war, in verse 6, we read, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul. See, that's something we don't see. One of the things that's amazingly absent from, uh, from Judges, Judges uh, 19 and 20 is there's no mention of God. He's not doing this because he's spiritually motivated, he's not doing this because of the Spirit of God is moving him, like in this case with Saul. He's doing it out of his own. Reaction to the situation. 
1 Samuel 11, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily. When he heard these words, he became very angry, and he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. In other words, it's a warning. He's going to warn the nation that if you don't respond to this call to arms and go against go into battle with us, then this is what's going to happen to you. This is the ultimate result is you're going to lose your cattle, you're going to lose your possessions, and you're going to be destroyed. And um, the, it almost seems when you read this as if they're chopped up into pieces and then each piece is sent to a different tribe. That's not what is, what is sent. What happens is the, back in Judges 19, the concubine is butchered into 12 pieces and all 12 pieces are taken by a messenger around the nation. This is a, a, a grotesque image. But they're taking these pieces around to demonstrate to all the tribes that there has been such a deterioration within the nation itself, such an increase in criminality and perversion, that if this isn't stopped now, this is what's going to happen to your women. This is what's going to happen to your daughters. This is what's going to happen to your wives. And so we have to stop this this sin, this perversion, this criminality now. In verse 30 we read, And it came about that all who saw it said, Nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider, take counsel, and speak up. And then in verse 1 of the next chapter, Then all the sons of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, notice, all the sons of Israel, that's with, with the exception of Benjamin, from Dan to Beersheba, this is the first time this phrase occurs, and it indicates the unity of the nation. Beersheba is in the far south. Dan is now in the far north. So it takes place after the events of, of chapter 17 and 18. And it includes the land of Gilead. That's the land across the Jordan, the Transjordan. All of them. So it's still early in the period of the judges. All of them come together, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And so here we're going to have to leave them until next week to see the reaction of the nation and the devastating consequences that this one episode has on the future of Israel, specifically the future of Benjamin. Now remember, all of this began with just a domestic spat between the Levite and his concubine. And now it's developing into a major uh, major event in Israel's history that threatens the continued existence of the tribe of Benjamin and threatens complete fragmentation of the nation as a whole. And that, the writer is showing, is that when we have unrestrained carnality in our own lives as individuals, that threatens the nation as a whole. As goes the believer, so goes the nation. When the believer is in apostasy and carnality, then the nation is threatened and the nation will deteriorate following the judgment process of Romans chapter 1. But when the believers are positive and there are a large number of believers so that they can function as a salt of, of the nation and a preservation for the nation and blessing by association to the nation, then these things will not take place. So ultimately what we are being told is the problems in our nation are not somebody else's problem. They're the problems, the failures of the nation to re, because they have rejected doctrine, they have rejected the truth, and the result of that is divine judgment. And because there are fewer and fewer believers left in the remnant in this nation, we can expect these kinds of things to just increase in our nation. And the, the reaction by governments is always to try to come back and control these things through, through the manufacture of law after law after law. And that doesn't solve the problem. In fact, it just creates even more problems. But it will bring about the loss of freedom and the increase in tyranny. But the solution is ever, it begins at the gospel and begins at the cross. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we have the opportunity to study your word. That even though studying a passage like this is, is difficult, even though it portrays uh, an extremely dark period and perverse activity in the history of Israel, yet nevertheless we are comforted because we know that, that Israel's history did not end with this type of activity, but because of your grace there was recovery. Because there were people who, even at this time, toward the end of the judges, were beginning to turn 
to doctrine. They were responding to the ministry of, of Samuel and others that the glory days of David were yet future and that ultimately the only solution to problems like this is the cross, that people must respond to salvation. If not, there will be judgment. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their salvation, unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus Christ died on the cross for every sin in human history. There is no sin that was left out. There is no sin too great for the grace of God. So every sin was paid for. Therefore, the only, salute, the only issue now is not your sin, but your trust in Jesus Christ, whether or not you accept the free gift of salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we've studied, that they would give us insight and discernment into what is going on in our own culture, and that we might be encouraged, strengthened in our own walk, that we might continue to be positive to your word. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.